I love when somebody asks me, do you have feelings about that? <laughs> That's one of my favorite questions. Do you have feelings about that? I like the opportunity to say no, though, because <laughs> it's it seems like the only acceptable, polite way to let someone say, I really don't care. <laughs> so if you say, if you prompt someone to be like, do you have any feelings about that? And if they just like say no, I I've been in that position where I'm just like, nope. Yeah, but that's one like, of those oh, thank God. awkward positions because most of the time, if somebody is like, do you have any feelings about that? A lot of them I'm not going to share. They're like, I have feelings about you asking me if I have feelings but you about don't, this. <laughs> you know? True. Like, are you trying to say? But you don't say? have to commit. No, you I could, could just be like, yes, but, you know, it's none of your business. <laughs> I do yeah, have feelings. I bet you wonder. That's the wrong question. I, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that question. Because I hate the question, what do you think? Why? It's Because yeah, it sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> this is Charles. And this is Rachel. From BNV Radio. This is Design Goggles. These days it seems like we quantify everything, and the world of design is no exception. Square footage, zoning envelopes, budgets, inches, and feet. In our modern technology obsessed society, we value quantifiable data to such an extreme, we may have forgotten that in the real world, we don't experience our daily lives in terms of numbers. Virtually everything we create, view, and experience makes us feel something. Now that isn't to say it's a good something or a bad something, but feelings and emotions are fundamental to the world of design, which makes it even more shocking how little we talk about them inside or outside the profession. Why suddenly are we afraid to discuss how a designer space makes us feel? How can we reprioritize feelings and emotions when we create architecture? And what does that mean in today's data-driven world? Finally, do we need to re-educate ourselves and let our own personal emotions inform the designs we create? To help us answer these questions and more, we're joined by Marissa Leda, an interior designer here at Bordenbello. Marissa, thank you so much for making time to sit and chat with us. You are welcome. Happy to be here. So how long have you been in Seattle? Well, three years coming up. I was going to say that was supposed to be easy. That was, that was the softball <laughs> that I throw in the beginning <laughs> to get things moving. I was like, oh, brick it's wall. It's a hard question. <laughs> yeah, brick wall. Let me Who wants it. to know? <laughs> but yeah, it's um, coming up on three years, I guess, in September. It's hard because I try to keep track of all the different anniversaries I have, and that's one of them. <laughs> Where did you come from? Where did you grow up? So I say Chicago to everyone, but it's actually a suburb. Unless you're from Chicago, you don't know the suburbs. So I come from a Chicago suburb. Is that like a big deal in Chicago? Do people give suburbanites hard time for being like, I'm totally from Chicago? Yes, mm -hmm. they do. Um, and there's a million Santa suburbs. Too. I've heard that. Mm -hmm. I've heard that. Yes. So it's one of the like millions of suburbs of Chicago, St. Charles particularly, if anyone's listening. Was the transition from Chicago to Seattle an easy one, a hard one? Well, talking about feelings with this podcast, um, <laughs> it was actually a little bag of both. So good and bad, I guess. So I have always wanted to move out to Seattle, or I guess after college I did. But I always had the anxiety, I guess, of moving out here and starting a new life. I'm someone who's lived in the same house all my life, same neighborhood, like never changed. So moving out here was a good and a bad mix of feelings, I guess, because I wanted to. But at the same time, there was a lot of fear with that move. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. 
See, fear. It's a, one of the basic human emotions. One of those feelings. <laughs> one of those feelings. I almost feel like I should put out a disclaimer. I've been reading like a lot of Eastern philosophy. Oh, so well. So just like putting that out there. Awesome. I'm feeling, I'm feeling very polished up on my Eastern philo. But anyway, one of the, the reasons I thought of this particular subject for you was that you, in addition to being an interior designer, are also a feng shui consultant. And most of the people in the design industry understand what feng shui at least is at a basic level. But just for the listeners who don't, could you describe what feng shui is, why someone would hire a consultant to help them with feng shui? Sure. So I will throw out the caveat that I guess feng shui has been transformed, I guess, into this new age sort of ideal, or at least there's a very westernized view of feng shui, but then there's the original view, and I feel like it gets mixed up a lot. So most people associate feng shui with, oh, you rearrange furniture and it helps improve your life or the flow of energy, otherwise known as qi. But it really, to me, goes deeper to understanding the relationships we have with our space. Hmm. So feng shui on a deeper level is the relationship we have with our spaces and how our spaces affect our own energies or our own emotions and feelings. So, for example, why someone would come to have a feng shui consultant is maybe there is some aspect in their life that they would like to see improvements. It's almost like you are, I don't want to say becoming a marriage counselor, but you are trying to understand this deeper psychology to that person and how that space is actually affecting them in their life. For example, this is one I like to use a lot. If someone wants a partner or a relationship and you go into their space and you see that, okay, well, your bedroom isn't really oriented for bringing that into your life. You have your bed in the corner that shows that you just want to be secluded and kind of tucked away. You only have one nightstand. It shows that you don't even want to bring in that second partner. So that's why one of the things with feng shui is to balance if you want to bring in a relationship to have two nightstands and to create a space that actually offers that up. So subconsciously you are picking up that message and over time it kind of changes that focus. Is feng shui consulting something that's much more common in the East? It is. Actually, someone I know from Taiwan was saying how it's such a common thing to have involved in architecture and design. Whereas here there's a little bit of a discord where it seems to be primarily with this new age community, unless you actually have that background and understand feng shui and specifically seek it out. Mm -hmm. Do you think it being more rare here is an indicator of how little feelings are valued when you approach a design project in the West versus the East? I do. More so than feelings, I think it's not looking at things from a holistic standpoint which is kind of related to the emotional wellness aspect, which the West seems to have cut off because that's just how society has kind of shaped us, where in the East, they see things much more holistically and encompassing. So that is just something that they put in naturally. Once you learn a thing, once you learn a design tool or a way of looking at things or a way of feeling about things or a way of analyzing how you feel about things, as a designer, it's very hard to turn off things that you have learned or you know about ways to make a design better. So yeah. even if somebody isn't paying you to be a feng shui consultant on a particular project, you still have it in your mind, right? You're yeah. still thinking about these things. 
just like we're thinking about all sorts of design principles across the board and some are applicable to some things and some are not applicable to other things. You know, it's yeah. just part of the repertoire of tools we have in a toolbox, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's interesting in a way that it's an add-on to design. Mm-hmm. Whereas as you were saying before, it's something that's much more holistic. It's just baked into everything in the East. And the prompt itself was a lot talking about how you can't take one out of the other. In fact, you experience everything that's designed in terms of feelings and impressions Mm -hmm. and not in terms of quantifiable data. And I feel like that must give you a huge advantage as a designer, because as you're approaching it, that must be just baked into how you think about a project. Do you find that you approach a project much more in terms of feelings of impressions from day one? Looking at feelings and dissecting that, too related, I guess, to feng shui. I just see it as a different lens because feelings, I mean, with Maslow's law, it's you know, way down at the bottom of like security and all of those like basic animalistic instincts. And feelings are also subconscious, as is psychology. Most people aren't super conscious about how a space affects us or how chi or rearranging something with feng shui affects us. So to answer your question, yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's the show, everybody. We're done. It's a wrap. It's a wrap. That was my pause. When I start a project, I go through and really do think about those psychological and those emotional aspects based on whatever the project's scope is. So say it's a place that the scope is to have people sit down and actually stay there for a while. People don't like to have their backs exposed to things. So to have a open seating area in the middle of this giant room, no one is going to sit in because you feel vulnerable, you feel exposed, you want to feel secure if you are going to have a place that you can just be by yourself and maybe read a book or do work. So that's something that I will try to think about is, okay, maybe this just means more against the wall seating or more booths or little niches where people feel that sense of security and coziness rather than being exposed. Do you ever have an opportunity to directly ask a client how a space makes them feel and how a design makes them feel? Is that something that people are generally comfortable with or uncomfortable with? It is something that I do feel most people are uncomfortable with. And I have done it, but not in the sense I guess I would like to further it. I've noticed that residential clients, you do get a little more of that engagement of how does this make you feel? rather than a commercial client where it's a little more on that logical mindset where they are looking at data rather. Mm -hmm. But even with residential clients, it's scary in the West, I think, to be vulnerable and talk about feelings. No one does. (laughs) Interesting you brought up vulnerability. Do you think that's the crux of the fear of people valuing how architecture makes them feel? I do think that they relate to being vulnerable, like just to have those open conversations because it is such a personal thing of how does a space make me feel or just talking about feelings in general. There is some hesitation. I don't know if it's societal. I don't know if it probably is, to be honest. We see feelings as a negative rather than something that can really help, not only with design, but in everyone's mental well-being. (laughs) (laughs) Do you find it changing? Are people becoming more comfortable with the concept or less comfortable with the concept of just actually emoting about space in terms of 
clients or even commercial clients. I have a thought about that. I think especially in the culture here in the U.S., the general population isn't educated in a way to think about spaces in that way. A lot of schooling, you know, even from the very early days in preschool and elementary school in European countries, for example, design is a thing that they study, not just European countries. So I really feel like this is something we need to fix here in our system. It matters to teach kids how to draw. It matters to teach kids about design and design thinking and things like that. But we haven't had that as part of our public education system in this country in generations And it means that it's not as much a part of the culture. We don't have as many open design competitions for big public projects as you would in other parts of the world. And so people just aren't conditioned. It's just not even on their radar to think about what a space feels like to them. It's just not a thing that people think about. It's so ironic because if you were to ask people if they agreed with the statement, the point of life after survival, basically, is to be happy, you'd get a lot of agreement, essentially. Yet we are taught, this is a Western thought versus Eastern thought thing. And Western thought, work really hard, be the best at something. And once you're the best, you'll be happy. Mm-hmm. And happiness is this thing that's later. And it's going to come later. And it's all about circumstances. In the meantime, nothing really matters. That's control over how happy you are, which is ironic. It's like the control we exert over our own joy is planning for joy. And then that's is, undermining a lot of people, right? Yeah. Because if you are completely miserable in your entire existence, it's pretty hard to get <laughs> yeah. somewhere in your life that you want to go because you're so yeah, mired down state. in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, with your question, if people in the West just don't think about how spaces make them feel, I almost want to say that people do, but it's not to the deep level of understanding why. People will walk into a space and maybe they'll be like, I love it, I hate it, if you ask them. But that's about the general reaction. You can tell when a space really impacts a person because they love it. When we look at feelings, we always look at the positives and never the negatives. So, so true. One process I've totally observed again and again and again is in the beginning of a project, it's about beauty and what things make people feel good visually. And then it's how much of that is possible And then it's, oh, wait, that's really expensive. I don't really value this as much as I thought. (laughs) In that order. Or what's the resale value of this? (laughs) Like they immediately think of, oh, but I'll need to sell this to someone else, which is bizarre to me, especially in terms of emotion. It's literally the process of thinking about resale value is one of taking yourself out of your space. Yeah, Mm -hmm. but if you're going to sell something... The best way to sell something is that somebody comes into that space and is like, oh, I love this. Mm -hmm. And I think what we need to teach people, Charles, you and I were talking about this earlier a little bit in the pre-show about toddlers and little kids not understanding the feelings that they're having about things. And it's confusing and overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it causes temper tantrums and things. When somebody was like, oh, I love this space. We should just start asking people, be like, why? Exactly. Why do you love it? Because people have to figure out how to explain why they love a thing or why they hate a thing. If they start to be able to list the reasons why they love it or hate it, then they can start to understand how they're feeling and what they might want in a different space or in a remodel or whatever. You know, I just many people need to be able to define the way spaces make them feel more specifically and that their inability to do so is holding them back from finding spaces, even if it's just like an apartment that they want to live in or whatever. 
if you can't figure out why you like or don't like a thing, then you're just going to be perpetually unhappy because you're going to make poor choices. Mm-hmm. Got to know why you like or don't like the things that you like or don't like. And value the process discovering that. Yeah. yeah. A lot of it, I think, is that asking yourself those questions and self-reflecting and actually mm-hmm. taking time to look at those tinier details. Of like, Why do I like this space? Again, I feel, you know, I have to say, I think, I don't know, <laughs> one of the two that spaces will see it as, um, oh, I really like it and can kind of pinpoint more why they like it because of a cool backsplash or whatever. It's more of a conscious or it'll come up more. Whereas people still just don't look at the negative. You may walk into a great space and love it and know why you love it. And you may walk into a space with blank walls and just a sad floor and talking about feelings. Yeah. <laughs> this uh, floor is so sad. It's yeah, the, saddest the saddest floor I've floor. ever seen. <laughs> I don't want to give a material to this floor because, again, it's oh, like... I do. It's like one of those old vinyl, like, roll-out laminates. Okay, that is a sad that floor. It <laughs> looks like tile, but it's it's just a roll-out yeah. thing. And it definitely hasn't been cleaned in a while. I feel like it was one There's of those marble... On it. it had a marble pattern that didn't extend beyond the tile there you know, used to be like maybe a refrigerator and there's some like dense <laughs> oh. where <laughs> a yellow outline yeah. of where the fridge was yeah for sure yeah i'm just picturing it now and i'm miserable <laughs> there's definitely a part where one long seam is popping up oh yeah yeah yeah. it's rippling up a little and there's like an old cheerio like under the seam where it's popped up you know? that's a sad floor <laughs> yes or just i all i think of that and just the broadloom carpet you see in dentist office from like the 80s that you're just like oh god but anyway <laughs> the sadness of these spaces that people will walk into next time on describe a murder scene yeah <laughs> well we in design can say why it's sad um most people will just that will be fine for them and they quote unquote tolerate it or they think nothing of it where oh my gosh if you actually add things into that space they don't realize the potential of how great they can feel in a space when they're just living in this space day after day people don't give enough credit to the spaces they're in they don't give enough credit to how that space is impacting them mentally and physically emotionally just to play devil's advocate are westerners simply less sensitive to their environment yes I will say that as well. And again, it's kind of on the not looking at the negatives too, or just sensitive in general. Again, with the East, you look at things in such a holistic way and you understand that it's many levels where I think in the West we have our blinders on and it's black and white thinking and we can't really understand these deeper layers of being sensitive to our environments. Yeah, for me, it goes back a little bit to that deferment of joy thing, that happiness isn't for now. It's occurring to me, I've seen this from the other perspective. Somebody comes to a designer, they feel like they've arrived at that point, and now they get to build their thing. And it can't possibly be good enough because they've suffered so much to have this money and to have this moment and to have this thing. They can't make it perfect enough to live up to the journey and the sacrifice to get there. And in a way, it becomes something that design can't possibly solve, can't provide that joy. You've put it on a pedestal so much. So much of this is a two-way street, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a positive step to be like, hey, I don't know what I'm doing. I should hire a professional. I'm going to hire a designer to make this space better. 
Because if you then hired the designer and then just shut down and was just like, make it so, it's only going to be so good in that scenario. It's just like if you were feeling unwell and you went to a doctor and you're like, well, I went to the doctor. You know, the doctor is going to say all these things and prescribe all these things that you should do and work with you to create a treatment plan. But if you're like, nope, I went to the doctor, I did my part, you're not going to get healed. So if you go and you hire a designer and then you're like, yeah, whatever, do whatever you want to do. And you're just not involved. Like you can only get so far. That's true. It's like the same thing as like going to the doctor's office and then being like, here's a shot. But then you're like, don't take the rest of the prescription or something. You know, like yeah. you have reason, to be invested and you have to commit. And that requires feelings. Yeah, it's you have true. To feel some feelings. It reminds me <laughs> of the designer Brian Paquette. I went to a talk he gave where he uh-huh. went through some of his work. Brian Paquette, he's kind of an internationally famous interior designer based out of Seattle. And so he's, you know, he's reached that point in his career where people don't tell him what to design. He does care about who his clients are and he does try to reflect them in his designs. But like after meeting one, they're just going to get delivered design. It's not a collaboration. And he makes beautiful spaces, but an uncanny amount of the couples that he takes on his clients get a divorce. (laughs) Many of which during the project. That is really interesting. Well, because I said it's almost back to the topic of you're almost like a marriage counselor. Mm -hmm. You're not designing for yourself. You're designing for these clients and you have to really understand them and their feelings. (laughs) Oh my gosh, not to talk about clients and work, but I was doing feng shui for a friend he lives with his friend and they act like a married couple Mm -hmm. and we were going through their rooms and they were talking about each of their spaces and i kid you not there was an argument over a chair and the placement of a chair and how it was the bane of his existence because he ran into it all the time and like how just moving the chair and i explained it like okay well this makes more sense blah 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 and afterwards like i asked him maybe two weeks later how things were with the feng shui and he was like oh my god how much it solved not just the aspect of arguing over a simple chair placement but just their relationship because yeah they weren't fighting over a chair that's fascinating this is one of those things where i dealt with plenty of trying to be marriage counselor to clients and things but i in my own life cannot imagine being in a relationship with somebody who isn't on the same page with me about what makes sense in your environment like i see those relationships and it makes it sound almost like we're saying like oh these people got divorced because brian came into their lives or which is totally unfair to him because the thing is is that like it makes no sense to be in a relationship with somebody who is not on the same page with you about these things mm-hmm. like how can you possibly share a space if you two are not on the same page it's insane and yeah. so these people were always going to get divorced they just were incapable of understanding that they were completely incompatible and yeah. all of a sudden they learned a little bit about what they like it's in a, a space mirror, and, right? while, and and they realized that they can't live together because they can't function together because they are completely incompatible maybe opposites attract but it's a bad idea oh yeah no it <laughs> is and just i mean i have my own personal <laughs> stories about like being in you know relationships that were just like design aesthetics were very different <laughs> yeah. not to say that that was the reason but like but was it? <laughs> Especially if it's your career, it's yeah. kind of like not to say. Well, that's a special curse, I feel like, for designers. Oh, yeah. It's like if we don't get control of that stuff, regardless of how compatible.
compatible you are with your... It was like date number one or whatever. Like I never got very far in a relay. As soon as I at any instance saw how a person lived somewhere or like how they treat their space or whatever. Like this is one of the earliest things that you can find out from a person. Yeah. As soon as you see where they live, you're like, oh, gigantic red flags. This is not going to work out. Because your spaces are like a reflection of your personality. I mean, how you design it, how you create it is so, tells so much about a person. And that's why with relationships and designing for couples or pairs is just that maybe someone has more of the design say in one relation, but the other person's not getting heard. It's finding that compromise, which... Mm -hmm. And there are people that have all sorts of tastes. If your tastes are such that you want to live in a disgusting place full of disgusting things, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. there is someone out there for you. Right? Oh, for sure. Find somebody compatible. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that's 100% true. Yeah. Oh, man. See, this whole time now, I'm just thinking about my place. Yeah. I'm just like, oh my God, I got to get rid of that couch. There <laughs> you go. There you go. I have this couch that's been in my existence since Shiloh ate it, my dog. Oh, yes. You'd mentioned that to me. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just like, but I can't afford that right now. Yeah. That's different though. You can walk into a space and be like, oh, I have this couch. My dog ate it, whatever. There it's is true. more than a one problem child couch or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's true. It just blows my mind when people end up in relationships with people that are so incompatible. Now, it sounds like we're more talking about like lifestyles at this point. This is going to go wherever it goes. Rather than, <laughs> rather than actual design aesthetics. Because I feel like with design, you can well, both find both. that compromise. Well, like, yeah. I've acted with couples that one is like super into really like traditional stuff mm-hmm. and one is super modern. And it's just like, well, how did you guys decide that you wanted to live together? Yeah. And no. how does that work? Because unless your beliefs in these things are entirely superficial, then mm-hmm. that's one thing. Because maybe you're like really uh, into trends and fads and stuff and Mm -hmm. so that's you know okay but if it's enough that you're paying like a lot of money for some serious pieces of furniture or whatever that are meant to last for years because you really really like that thing it's really hard to see how I don't know it depends about what the rest of your life is all about there's a famous brutalist architect I forget his name but he loves his wife they've been married for 40 years and they have like the most obnoxious, traditional everything in his house. And that's just the way it is. And it's like colors and garish stuff and windy staircases. And but we don't know what and... their relationship is like. <laughs> right. But he, he is this stark, brutal, everything's concrete. Nothing is finished. And he's just like. So is he a hypocrite or is he just keeping it? No. <laughs> he, he talks about it a lot during his talks. I wish I could remember his name. And he's just like. It doesn't make me a better designer per se, but I don't need to live in it. And in fact, it makes me retreat more and think more about an envision space to not be in that space. In a way, it's to not be in his home or to not be in the to not be in a brutalist space. So he's saying that he finds it insufferable to live in brutalist spaces. The the, the escapism causes him to be more creative, is what he says. (laughs) First, do no harm. I mean, come on. (laughs) You talk about yeah, being in a space that you just want to maybe escape, or it like compels you to do the opposite. I mean, and that's kind of one of the reasons I feel I became a designer was my parents' house was the worst. (laughs) Sorry, mom and dad, it is. (laughs) (laughs) But it was no color on the walls, same like oak furniture from the 70s. Just like I lived in a yellow bathroom 
for all of my teenage years. It was awful. But just living in that space drove me so crazy that I think it just propelled me to want to design beautiful, yeah. wonderful spaces. And you're going to be like, honey, see, we helped you. I know, right? <laughs> like, yeah. That yellow bathroom is still there. Yeah. I told you it would work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's... we propelled you to greatness. Uh, <laughs> That's right. By making you the ultimate retcon. <laughs> You can't really get back at your parents if you're a success. It's just you're done for. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that's true. You will never get revenge. No, I mean, it did propel me. But at the same time, I was trying to escape. That was such <laughs> a, oh, my God, I can't live in this space because how it made me feel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I find it hard. I'm curious if you share this feeling to maintain as sensitive as we are to how spaces make people feel. We talk about it all the time in the office, in the industry, between designers. So much of our jobs revolve around practicalities. They just do revolve around fees and budgets and codes. And it's so easy to forget about how a space is really going to make you feel. You are definitely, I think, one of the of the designers that I know the most in touch with emotional translation of physical spaces. Do you ever find it hard to maintain that considering how many practical things we have to worry about? Yeah, it does affect my emotions quite when, yeah, you see these things that you have a sense of knowing that this will impact a space positively or create the sense of emotion. And when people think in such black and white, very logical, oh, it costs too much or all of these parameters, it takes away so much. And then people also at the end are like, well, why didn't it happen? Or I don't understand why the space isn't getting leased or blah, blah, blah. Well, it's because you took away the feeling. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when I was researching for the show, I found a bunch of stuff. Some of it I totally expected to find. Famous capital A architects talking about a philosophy and we've lost this thing that we used to have. But the more interesting articles I found were about built work and people wondering about the emotional state of the designer and how the emotions of the designer come out in the work. And it was fascinating because this one particular article started with architects we knew a lot about, like Frank Lloyd Wright, who everybody knew was very arrogant and his buildings were all very daring and in a way arrogant. And then this is the most interesting one. A lot of Louis Kahn pictures, who we all knew was kind of a tortured soul and had multiple families and was mm -hmm. kind of depressed. And so much of his work focused on these brutal structures that only let light in in these very controlled ways. People say they're all about light, but they're actually mostly about blocking light, if you think about it. And started to show more and more images and started to make me really think about what is leaking from my psyche into my work, depending on how I'm feeling. Because we're the instrument, we're the filter, we're the tool that a client is using to create something. But we're also people, no matter what we do, we can't design our own feelings either. Well, but you're also touching on another thing here with the role of ego mm -hmm. and architects, particularly the ones you mentioned, you know, are famously egotistical based kind of star architect level architects. And there's the big debate about whether or not you really are a good designer if you're letting your own ego take that big of a role in what you do. Mm -hmm. The star architects do. It's all about ego. They don't care about the people that are in the buildings. That's why it's so miserable a lot of times to be in some of these really famous buildings built by famous architects. It's insufferable to be in there mm -hmm. a lot of the time. It might be cool to like walk in there and be like, whoa, this is so cool. But if you have to actually work there and be there all day long, <laughs> mm -hmm. horrible. You know, and that's ego that's playing there. And I mean, it's, it's 
it's the way you're describing it is sort of like doing a post-psychological analysis on how somebody in a very art historical or architectural historical way of, of let's analyze this person's work based on what we know about them in the historical record and all these things. But I think that's distinctly different from somebody that is being a truly good designer designing for their client and right. their client's feelings. Right. Those were the first couple examples. The rest were photographs of work that you didn't even know who the architect was. Mm -hmm. And it was guesswork about what the creator might have been feeling or mm -hmm. what the work says about the creator more than the client. Obviously, there were big budget images, mm -hmm. so surely there was leeway to realize all kinds of interesting things. It just made me realize that no matter how much we say, oh, you know, we're just going to bring our client's idea, we can't pretend we're not also bringing our emotions to the table. In fact, if we're the translators, we kind of get to decide what input we get from a client and what that translates into. We get to define, we were talking before the show, defining what a sad space is. We get to actually make that connection for a lot of people who can't. Yeah. I mean, designers play a role of translators for people that can't either interpret or describe their own feelings. A lot of times that's a role that a designer plays is, is translating one to the other for people. Mm -hmm. And you can be a good translator or you can be a bad translator. You could be a malicious translator. You could be like a, a manipulative translator. There is a lot of different ways. I feel like we're learning a lot about Rachel right now. <laughs> <laughs> What happens when feelings come out? I know. <laughs> Have you ever found yourself in a spot where you realized you were, in a good or bad way, it doesn't need to be either, but you realized a lot of you was coming out in a project? I think it comes out with every, while I do tend to lean heavy on those feelings, there are preferences that I've noticed that designers tend to have, and it's based on their emotional relationship or connection. Not to pick on you, Charles, but I do pick on you. Go of, on. Well, not, <laughs> not loving Rattan or Oh, Kane. sorry, I'm out, of, I'm, out of, I'm, out of, I'm out of memory on the computer. Uh, thank you so Why much. Why don't for, you like them? Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, uh, anyway, check us out on designgoglespodcast.com. Kidding. Please continue. But just with that like you must have a real strong feeling attached with that. Oh I totally do. He had a and traumatic I know exactly what experience as a child with rattan. No it's 100% true. No no no. Here I'll just confess it right here. All, all 100 <laughs> listeners will understand why I hate rattan. So um, my mom who actually had really good taste more or less and she decorated our home several times a few times through. At one point she became obsessed with like and it was like 88 87 and she became, she's like obsessed with Pier 1 and everything Pier 1 had in 88, 87 was rattan, <laughs> which sounds fine, except the whole house sounded like rattan all the time. Oh. Everything creaked all the time, constantly. And when you're a kid, you spend most of your time at home. And I just listened to that insufferable noise for years on end. And it got really old. And Did then it, it moved, induce rage? Totally. And then it moved into like the small family room where the TV was, where I spent most of my time, the really old creaky ones. And so all the furniture I sat on would like move and shift when I sat down and then like shift again because it was old rattan. Wow. And it would do the creaky thing and it just like scarred me forever. But that's interesting because you ha not only have that emotional connection, but it's the senses of how just hearing the sound of yes, it brought yes. back that like, oh, God, I hate it. Yeah, I have a visceral reaction to that sound. And I mean, it's now somewhat rational, somewhat irrational. But every time you're totally right. Every time a client is like, I want to put rattan. I'm just like, have you thought about what happens to it when it ages? <laughs> because I'm just like, are you sure you want to do this? And yeah, that's how we kind of are those gatekeepers in a sense based on our own personal preferences. 
is mm-hmm. and we kind of navigate and <laughs> I don't want to use manipulate, but uh, navigate. <laughs> so we'll use navigate those lines of what we like and also how to still have what we think our clients would like to. I was hanging out with a former client who's a friend of mine now. And in that project, there was a couple of rattan pieces <laughs> and I was at this person's house and I got really drunk and I ended up going off about rattan. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I was like, what? Why are they making these faces at me? Why are they? And I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> See, so here's the thing. Talk about feelings and all. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I get it. But I think that not that I want a house full of creaky rattan or anything. I don't. <laughs> at all. <laughs> but there's other furniture that squeaks too. Sound, not as much as smell does. Smell is one of those things that really, really, really closely connects to memory. We acclimate physiologically to smell faster than sound. Yes. But we still do have emotional connections to the other inputs that we come in. So if it's the sound of rattan that's bothering you, right? And you've, at some point in your childhood, you get super annoyed with it and that is stuck with you and you probably will never let it go, which is fine. Like, (laughs) I think you're, you're, your life will be fine. <laughs> there are worse things. <laughs> yeah, during my annual review, let's talk about the rattan issue. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that there might be, like, I wouldn't be surprised at all if there are people that associate the sound of creaky rattan with something positive, right? Maybe it was like a beachside cabin they used to go to as a kid and the furniture was there and it creaked. And so they, for their life, will have this positive mm-hmm. experience that they get from it and it will always bring these like positive feelings and remind them of these positive things. Whereas for you, the exact sound, it's all about the feels, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it, that impacted you in a way that you perceived as negative, mm-hmm. whereas that exact kind of thing might be nostalgic or to oh, somebody sure. else in a I way that totally... they find it very reassuring and comforting. Mm-hmm. That makes perfect sense. So I have a question, if that's okay. To yeah, sure. <laughs> Flip the script. Yeah. Do it. So talking about what you said, Rachel. How did both of you feel when Notre Dame caught on fire? Mm. Huh. Well, I, I have not actually been there. So I don't have a personal experience to connect and have feelings in that way to it. But I did have this sense of, of, oh, no, this is a major, beautiful cultural relic that has been touched by literally the hands of people building it over thousands of years and and the feelings of people visiting it. I'm not like cold and dead to all that stuff. (laughs) I do have feelings, (laughs) but without a personal connection, it's very much like, oh, that is tragic. But I have no personal connection to it. And so then my mind started going towards, wow, this is a tremendous opportunity now. We could do something now. We could find a silver lining in this and make some beautiful modern intervention into this that would tie these incredibly old thing that has all these years of history in it with our current moment in time. And and it's in Paris and they have a history of doing that kind of thing. You know, beautiful modern interventions and old things. And I, I thought, oh, there's so much possibility here now. There's some optimism in there. Mm-hmm. My first thought was I checked to see if there were any people in it. <laughs> and then I realized there were no people in it. The second thing I thought of, oddly, was the fire in London not that long ago in that big skyscraper apartment building where half the building burned down and like 100 yeah, people yeah. died. And it was an ugly building. And that fire made me sad and angry and resentful. 
this fire was sad, but in a muted way. There are so many famous, especially churches, but many famous buildings throughout history that have gone through death and rebirth over and over and over again. In fact, many churches were taken apart and rebuilt several times. And I think I might have mentioned this to you, Marissa. There's the most famous church ever built, the largest Catholic church ever built. All that exists of it are the front stairs. Hmm. It's called Clooney Three, hmm. And the Catholic church built it many, many times, and it was the largest church ever built. And then the Catholic church needed cash, and they deconstructed it and sold the parts. Oh. <laughs> and... I found that to be so fascinating. And so the first, of course, flash after I realized no one was in it was that's really sad. But then I was like, what? It's also like a part of the cycle of these beautiful things that we hold on to as part of our heritage. We try to keep them the same and exert our control over them. But no matter what we do, there's this cycle to it. And I don't want to say there is beauty to it because it's not beauty, but I think there will be beauty to it. No, there is beauty in destruction. I'm not afraid yeah. to say that. Mm -hmm. There's beauty in sadness. There's beauty mm -hmm. in destruction. But it reinforced our appreciation of all of these very old, very beautiful things that we take for granted. Yeah. Well, and even if it's old, though, I mean, I personally love old architecture and I do appreciate that beauty. But, you know, there could be a church somewhere else in Europe that could be even even older. Actually, there's churches in Paris that are like that, that are way older than Notre Dame, mm -hmm. but get overlooked because of the memories that people have with that church. Um, mm -hmm. Like Rachel was saying, I've never personally been there, so I don't have an emotional like that memory attached, which is why I think so many people mm -hmm. just got so devastated because of it. Not only is it just become the symbol and this icon of France and Paris, but just, you know, everyone's proposing or taking mm -hmm. photos there and all of the personal memories. Yeah, it's more public. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not meaning to sound terrible, but like anyone's childhood home burns down, even if you hated your childhood or whatever, that is going to have an emotional impact on you. Okay, I'm trying to make it like happy a little bit. <laughs> say, say you still own it. You inherited your childhood home, but it doesn't work for your current family. And now you're going to tear it down and remodel it and make it work for your new family. You're still going to have major emotional things to work through about the fact that you're going to tear down the home you grew up in. Yeah. Right. As humans, we just form these emotional connections to the spaces that we inhabit. And so with a thing like Notre Dame, we have people all over the world who have formed emotional connections to mm -hmm. it. So it's just more it's like there's a global experience of it as opposed to there's a lot of structures that exist that are not important necessarily to anyone. But the people that have that emotional connection to them that have been destroyed or will be destroyed for various reasons, good and bad. I guess what I'm getting at is that the sort of underlying message is that humans attach themselves emotionally to spaces yeah. and whatever happens to them, it impacts us emotionally. Which I keep asking questions here and that's not the way it goes. <laughs> no, but no, we I'm love it. You read the outro. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you said something too, which actually made me think yeah. because as designers, people are so attached to their spaces and say you have a space that has never changed for years and years and you have all these memories and, you know, maybe it's time for a remodel or something mm -hmm. like that. And how to get a client to let go. It's mm -hmm. really hard. Because of that emotional connection. And to then try to change it where you are creating this new emotional connection. It's Yeah. It's really where psychologists come to play. I mean, right. Like we form these connections and like maybe you raised your kids there. Mm -hmm. You know, you have a ton of positive memories. 
And different people's memories work in different ways, right? Like some people like to flip through their old photo books all the time, or some people keep journals and write it all down in words, or some people don't do either of those things. And literally what they have that triggers their memory is walking into the space and walking into them triggers in their mind all these memories. And so that's one of these things that we have to think about as designers is like, are these people that we're working with? What is their trigger for the memories? Because if it is walking into the space and that's the only thing that they have, like that's the one thing that they have to link back to that, then that shouldn't be ignored. There's ways, if we understand that that's the case, that you can know that and take it and create new triggers to get to that same memory. If for some reason this particular space or what we're doing about it is going to disrupt this person's access to that memory that they have, how do we create a new trigger? Mm-hmm. Is it that we're salvaging something from there? something that they can create a new memory by maybe it becomes tactile like we salvage the material and they can like feel the wood of this whole table which is now over here but they can create that new memory and create those new neural pathways to access that memory yeah it's rewriting that story to this house that you grew up in or whatever that story is that you are holding on to to just write a new chapter of Mm -hmm. that and Mm -hmm. just be like oh yeah that wood flooring now it's actually you know paneling here or something Mm -hmm. like that where you still have that old story but now you have this cool new story to attach to that right you're adding on to the history yeah the story doesn't have to end with that memory that you had you can evolve it Mm -hmm. and helping people make new connections to their new spaces and draw that thread through their history and through their emotional history is one of the things i mean this is really more in residential architecture probably well feelings just serve a different purpose actually some of the commercial projects i've worked on are much more focused on feelings but feelings of the customer's feelings and feeling comfortable temporary feelings feeling comfortable or feeling like they have an escape and feeling free to spend their money. And it's very specific feelings. And it's more on the benevolently manipulative side. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I say benevolently because of like, of course, like they need to stay open and they're not trying to deceive a customer. They're just trying to exchange goods. But it's emotional in a very different way. But hitting all those same notes of nostalgia and mm-hmm. like, you know, what people value and how they want to feel. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. Well, stuff. That's why feelings are important to impacting design is that you can generate a specific feeling, even if it is on the commercial front where, hey, we want to get more people to actually sit down and relax in our space. And how do we go about doing that? Mm-hmm. And you do a lot of work with specific material selection and things, right? So that sometimes can be like a shortcut to getting into somebody's emotional connection is if you introduce some material that either maybe it's tactile or maybe it's the sound of the creeps or whatever, but through material and product selections, you can kind of shortcut somebody's memory to get them to feel nostalgic about something or get them to feel comfortable about a thing. And so selecting materials is not just an aesthetic thing. It's about creating an emotional environment for people to be within. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of at least I think that all of the design elements and principles you learned in school relate to feelings mm-hmm. in that way of how color affects you, how lines affect you, how form affects you. Because mm-hmm. it was interesting how McDonald's just in the 90s and previous, it was just a fast food restaurant where you get in, you get out and their colors kind of related to that energizing, hey, quick, 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 quick. But then due to understanding, hey, we actually want people to sit and enjoy the space more, how they totally revamped their whole design in order to Mm -hmm. let people lounge and stay more with 
free Wi-Fi and these lounge areas and how they, quote, manipulated a space to get that result. I think it's interesting. (laughs) Oh, it's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, that's how businesses do business, right? I mean, like we step around it and say, oh, we don't want to be like manipulating people or whatever. But because we assign this negative connotation to the term manipulation, Mm -hmm. you can manipulate people to do things positively. You know, we can manipulate people into doing things that are for their benefit. Good design is going to make people feel good and is going to help a business reach their goals of having people hang out and order another coffee or whatever. And Mm -hmm. yes, you are manipulating people to hang out longer. But they're hanging out longer because they like it there. Yeah, it's so true. (laughs) We're almost out of time. Any final thoughts about emotions and design and architecture? So many, but... Um, how are you feeling? How do you, yeah, yeah, just just to wrap up, how you how feel? How do you feel? How am I feeling? Well, I'm feeling a little, just came into this not knowing how to feel or what this process was about, but it seems very, very fun and low key and casual. So, no, it's been Thoughts nice. and feelings. All right. Thank you, Marissa, for coming on. I definitely want to have you back. There's so much to talk about. Yeah, because I feel, uh, sorry, again, I feel like we just scratched the surface of feelings. We did. It feels like there's so much more to talk about. Hey, there is. like a real depth of feeling. Yeah, I yes. know. We need to dive deeper. Well, thank you all very much for feeling with us and for listening. Please, if you feel like it, check out <laughs> check out Design Goggles podcast on Instagram and Design Goggles on Facebook and Twitter. Also, if you feel like it, check out our blog on boredandvellum.com. There's always super cool stuff being posted there. And as always, please stop on by Board and Vellum in Seattle anytime for a chat with us. We would love to have you. Thank you again, and we will see you all in a few weeks. Bye.